The psalmist says, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, O Lord. Would you stand as we begin our time of worship? Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. here today. Thank you for spending a part of your Labor Day weekend with us and choosing to worship with us today. If you're here for the first time, uh, there is a visitor's card in the pew rack in front of you. You would do us the honor of filling that out and either leaving it in the pew or putting it in the offering boxes at the doors when you leave. Or if you've been here before and you've never filled one of these out, uh, we would ask you to consider that possibility today. For those of you who don't know, I'm Ron Horniker. I'm the part-time staff person in charge of counseling. Uh, Pastor Kirby asked me to fill in for him this morning uh, since he and Debbie are taking the weekend for themselves and much deserved, I'm certain. This morning, as a part of our worship, we'll be sharing together in the observance of the Lord's Supper memorial our Lord gave to the church to remember his broken body and shed blood 
that brought about our salvation. So let's go to the Father now and ask his blessing upon this part of the service and give him thanks for that which he's done for us. Shall we pray? Our Father, the hymn of joy we just sang does indeed remind us of so many things for which we have cause to give thanks and to praise you. We live in this wonderful created order composed of beautiful flowers, towering trees, spectacular rock and mountain formations, amazing ocean vistas, and magnificent starry night skies. Your constant and abiding presence gives us strength for each day and enables us to cope not only with our usual daily challenges, but with those times of great difficulty when we must deal with the experiences of great loss and have to face the reality of aging bodies and failing health. Yet in the midst of this, you allow us to find a home within a community of faith where we can draw strength from one another, where we can both give and receive emotional support, and where we can be nurtured spiritually and be drawn closer to you. For all these things, and for so much more, we give you thanks. Now, as we prepare to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you will help us to use this time to think afresh of the great gift of yourself and all that that means for us, both now and for all eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In keeping with the practice of believers since the time of the early church, we've gathered together this morning to fellowship, to worship, and to share together in the observance of the Lord's Supper. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are declaring together that we are participants in God's great work of salvation. By means of his wondrous grace, and it's made available through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us, we've been redeemed, redeemed to become joint heirs with Christ and members of the household of God. What a gracious privilege is ours. So if you share in that confession and that hope, then we invite you to participate with us in the taking of the bread and the cup. Men and women share equally. This is the Lord's table, and we do this in remembrance of him. As you receive the elements, I would ask that you hold them until all have received, and then we will eat and drink together.
on the same night, Jesus took the cup and gave it to his disciples saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you.
This cup represents the new covenant made possible by Christ's blood. Give thanks and drink the juice in remembrance of him. Scripture says, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nancy and the group are going to come and lead us as we continue in worship.
we have a God who knows our name. Let's sing about that.
Thank you, Ruthie. Will you pray with me? Father, we've already sensed your presence here with us in the service this morning. And we give you thanks for that. Now I pray that you will take the words about to be spoken and use them to speak to each of us in keeping with our need. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In early June of this year, the Southern Baptist world was rocked by a published report detailing accusations of sexual abuse by numerous clergymen that had occurred over the last 20 years. Many of those incidents had been communicated to the primary governing body of the convention, that is, the executive committee, by those who were the victims of that abuse. However, rather than dealing with the accusations, those registering their complaints were responded to with being ignored, denigrated, intimidated, mistreated, accused of lying, and having their reputations besmirched, among many other things. When the report became public, Pastor Kirby asked me for my response as a pastoral counselor. I responded with several written observations. But I further indicated that this matter raised for me a much larger issue that had to do with persons of faith and their ability to relate to those who were different from them in some kind of way. Differences such as gender, ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, political convictions, theological stances, and the like. It is my perception that often believers struggle to accept or treat with equality and dignity those who differ with from them in some of these ways. And as a result, they tend to respond in ways that others likely experience as abusive. So this morning, I want us to consider some of what the scripture says about how you and I as believers are to relate to one another and how we're to view and to respond to those who are different from us in some particular ways. But before I do that, let me try to define the problem, at least as I perceive it. The SBC report was about abuse, sexual and otherwise. But I would dare say that everyone present this morning has, at some time or another, either been the victim of some type of abuse themselves, or perhaps been guilty of expressing words and behavior that others may have experienced as abusive. So what am I talking about when I talk about abuse? Well, let me seek to define that word as I understand it. To abuse another person according to the dictionary, is, among other things, to speak in an insulting or offensive way to or about another person. It also is to physically mistreat or violate another. It is to use whatever means one has 
in order to control or manipulate another person for their own selfish ends without any regard for how the other individual is going to be impacted. Now, while we would tend not to think of ourselves as abusers, two of us have not been guilty at one time or another of the actions that would fall within this particular definition. So with that possibility, let's think more specifically about various forms of abuse. I would guess that when most hear the word abuse, the first thing that comes to their mind would be physical abuse. This would include physically hitting another person, slapping them, uh, using physical force against another person to restrain them or possibly to choke them. It also could include throwing things, punching holes in a wall, or physically intimidating another. Very likely, very likely some of you have experienced or observed that type of physical abuse either from a spouse, a parent, or someone close to you, either as a child or as an adult. And if you did, I have a hunch those memories still haunt you. The word abuse may cause some to think of sexual abuse, being forced into some type of sexual activity without your consent. That certainly involves rape. But it also can involve a husband in a marriage demanding sexual relations from his wife when she does not want to have them. Or it could be a wife withholding sexual relations as a means of manipulating her husband to get what she wants. This also includes being molested as a child, being forced to perform sexual acts on an adult, or having to experience sexual acts um, from adults, perhaps even siblings, or friends of family. Now, we find these thoughts, these actions, repugnant. Absolutely distasteful. But you see, more persons than we realize have had to experience such treatment. And they carry the emotional scars from those experiences with them throughout the remainder of their days, unless someplace along the way they find help or seek help for themselves. But there are other, less physical forms of abuse that can be equally as damaging. Doing things like calling people derogatory names, taking actions that result in the shaming of another person, telling a humorous joke that really is told for the purpose of having somebody else in mind and humiliating them, or perhaps using words to uh, speak in such a way that they harass and ridicule someone, possibly a spouse or a child. Verbal abuse also involves constant criticism, ridicule, yelling and screaming at another person to vent one's frustration, even swearing at them and making threats. The objective in all this is to break down the other person's sense of self, and to demoralize them, and to maintain power and control over them and their activities. Well, related 
to verbal abuse is emotional abuse. Like verbal abuse, it is a non-physical behavior that belittles another person. It includes such things as insults, put-downs, verbal threats, or other tactics that might result in the victim feeling threatened, inferior, ashamed, or degraded. It also includes bullying. Educator Elaine Parks is quoted in an article in Baptist News Global as saying, the rise of social media and hate-based politics has helped transform the United States into a nation of bullies, where acts of rage and intimidation have become normative and even celebrated. She goes on. What is unique about social media is that it has given rise to increased bullying because it is the place of coward bullies. Until we had social media bullying, you had at least to be present to bully. Now people can bully and be cowards and hide behind their post. They don't need to face up to their behavior. Now, let me ask a hard question. Did you see yourself in any of the types of abuse I just described? I must admit, I've been guilty of some of those related to the use of words. But, I trust, we all would agree that none of these are in keeping with how God would have us to relate to one another regardless of our differences. But I also want to suggest that abuse exists in other forms as well. I believe abuse exists where there is prejudice and discrimination and partiality. Think about the many ways in which women and persons of color and those with a different sexual orientation or those who come from a minority ethnic background, how all those persons are often discriminated against and not treated with dignity and equality. Is that not by its very nature abusive? I believe abuse exists when individuals intentionally lie and do not speak the truth. They use those lies to advance their own causes and serve their own selfish purposes. It is a means of manipulation and control. It is self-serving, with little consideration for how others will be affected by their lies. Is that not an example of abuse? And what about some of the jokes we tell that demean either men or women or the prejudicial labels we use to identify those who are different from us politically, racially, theologically, or culturally. I suspect most here are old enough to remember the TV comedy from the 50s entitled The Honeymooners. The show featured Jackie Gleason as a New York City bus driver named Ralph Cramden. Audrey Meadows played his wife, Alice. And his buddy upstairs, with whom he communicated by raising the window and sticking his head out and yelling up to him, was a sanitation worker named Ed Norton, played by Art Carney. However, if you go back now and watch any of the shows, you can observe many illustrations of emotional and verbal abuse. There was deceit. There was manipulation, 
Women were expected to be in a certain submissive role. They also could be manipulative at times. And every once in a while, Cramden would become frustrated with Alice. And when he did, he'd ball up his fist as though to hit her. And he would say, someday, Alice, someday, pow, right in the kissing. And we would laugh. But you know what? That was and is abusive and demeaning behavior. Some of the same things were a part of the TV series All in the Family, starring Carol O'Connor as Archie Bunker, the name that's quite famous. You see, in past years, at least some of the things I have just mentioned as being abusive and that we saw in those TV shows may have seemed acceptable. But now, we really need to reflect on those behaviors and hold them up to the light of Scripture to see if what we've been doing all these years really is in keeping with God's intention for us. So, what does the Scripture say about all these various behaviors that I've characterized as abuse? What kind of guidance has God given us about regarding how we are to relate to fellow believers and how we are to relate to fellow human beings and how we are to relate to those who are different from us in some ways. Well, I want to focus on three scripture passages this morning in my attempt to answer that, those questions. Obviously, there are a lot of other scripture passages that could be cited. But I believe these three will provide substantial guidance. First one is taken from the creation account of Genesis. Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, undoubtedly, we've read and heard those verses many, many times. Let's try to stop and consider the implications of those words. The scripture writer is saying that each and every person, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of whether they are here legally or illegally, regardless of their political party, or whatever the differences may be, each and everyone bears God's stamp on their lives. They were created in his image. Christ died for them. And because of that, each and everyone has worth and value and deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. man was standing on a subway platform waiting for the next train. And as he stood there reading his paper, all of a sudden there was a sharp jab in his back as though someone had stuck him with a stick. Well, his first instinct was a response of anger to turn and to give this person a piece of his mind because he'd been so thoughtless and careless. However, as he turned to confront the individual, he was surprised to meet a man carrying a long, white walking stick, wearing colored glasses, 
who was either blind or nearly so, and to hear him say, I'm sorry. What's the lesson? Well, you see, it is how we view others, who and what we perceive them to be, has much to do with the attitude we have towards them and consequently how we treat them. Stop and think for a moment about how God sees all those persons we struggle to relate to. They are his children. They are ones whom he loves. Think about the man on the subway platform and the assumptions he made. Do we not make assumptions when we've not taken the time to meet the other person, to get to know their story, or to understand their life situation? Again, each is one of God's children. Each is one whom he loves. Each is one for whom Christ died. And I believe that needs to impact the way we view those persons the way we relate to them, and how we treat them. You see, abuse in any form is never a part of God's intention for how we are to relate to others, regardless of the circumstances or the differences. So, as you struggle with those persons who are different from you, who don't always behave like you think they need to behave, who seem to live by a different set of values than you live by, or whose theology is different than yours, just remember, that person is one of God's children, and he wants you to love and care for that person as he does. The second passage comes from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. Eugene Peterson of The Message translates the passage this way. Here's a simple rule of thumb for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. And then you grab the initiative and do it to them. Add up the law and the prophets, and that's what you get. Most of us have known this as the golden rule. Shorthand way we've had of expressing it is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Consider for a moment what most everyone wants or desires for themselves in any kind of relationship. What do they want? What do we want? Well, they want respect. They want to be listened to and heard. They want to be treated fairly. And they want to sense that they matter to the other person, that they're valued and appreciated for who they are. And they do not want to be judged based on some external criteria. The color of their skin, their political affiliation, their gender, their cultural background, on and on I could go. No, they want to be judged on the basis of who they are as a person and how they present themselves in the current situation. Think about what you want in a relationship. Jesus says, once you identify that, then that provides the basis for you in knowing what you need to do in relating to others. If you reflect on all the various forms of abuse I describe, do any of them describe what you want done to you? 
Well, obviously not. So is not God's message to us in that rather clear? Give attention to what it must be like for women to hear jokes that tend to denigrate them or for those who have a different racial or ethnic background to hear pejorative words and phrases used to describe them. Think about all the actions I previously described as being a part of abuse. And then consider if you would want those actions taken towards you. And then finally, give special attention to that last phrase that Jesus said, for this sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, all of God's expectations regarding how we're to treat others is summed up in this idea of treating others as we would want to be treated. Does that not give rather clear instructions about how we might avoid abusive behavior? Final passage comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Fourth chapter, 29th verse. Listen to what he says. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This passage deals with our words and their impact on others. Think about how I describe verbal and emotional abuse. Not being truthful, denigrating jokes, uh, constantly criticizing and ridiculing others, labeling and using derogatory terms to describe those who are different from us. What do you notice that's similar about all those? They all have to do with our words. Paul's instruction in this passage includes a negative and a positive admonition, both making the same point. No unwholesome talk needs to come out of your mouth, only that which is helpful for building up others. You see, words make a difference. In the sermon I preached a few months back, I pointed out, consistent with what Paul is saying, that words have the power to heal as well as to destroy. Paul is advocating that when we speak, every word, every word should be so that it will do the other person good. That a Christian needs to be characterized by the words which will help their fellow human beings. That's quite a test. As I was researching this verse, I found this, common, found this comment by a biblical commentator, which I found very insightful and challenging. Words are the index of character, he said. Let me repeat that. Words are the index of character. Isn't that a great statement? Then he asked, do our words build up the hearer's character and make him a better person for their having heard or speaking? Do they meet the person's needs? And do they in this way bring a blessing by supplying that need? Aren't those helpful, thoughtful questions? But then he goes on. Foul or inappropriate language is not only an insult to the hearer. It saddens the Holy Spirit by wounding him and denying in practice the meaning of his indwelling and sanctifying presence in the believer. 
which is a token of Christ, of the Christian's full redemption. You see, words matter. They have the power to build up and to tear down. So there you have the contrast. What constitutes abusive actions and words as over against God's standard of seeing all persons as created in his image, of expecting us to treat others as we would want to be treated, and of using our words to build others up rather than to bless. We are to bless rather than to curse. So that being the case, this confronts us with a rather significant question. The question is, who will we be? Who will we be? It is a question that our convention, our denomination, will have to answer, and it is struggling to do so at this time. Who will we be as a denomination when it comes to these areas? But it's also a question for our church to answer. Who will we be as a church? If abuse is as I have described it, and in God's, expect God's expectations are as I have outlined them, Will we continue in our old ways when some of those ways may be abusive? Will we be passive when we observe such abuse occurring in our presence, particularly related to our words, the stories we tell, the side comments we make, and the way in which we speak to others who are different from us? Or will we help others to recognize how some of their behaviors and their words are potentially harmful to others? Who will we be? But perhaps the most significant question is not, who will we be, but who will I be? Some who hear this sermon may tend to minimize the idea of abuse, particularly in some of its more subtle forms. They may be reluctant to recognize some of their words, attitudes, and behavior as being abusive in nature. They may be resistant to change, on their part. Additionally, some may see this sermon and me as one who's trying to do something that's PC, politically correct. Well, could any of those responses be the case for you? I'd simply ask you to reflect on your own words and behavior and see if anything I've described this morning fits. And if it does, I would ask you to look at that in the light of Scripture, particularly the passages we looked at this morning, and see what God's message to you might be. You see, as I shared previously, as I worked on this sermon, I was embarrassed to see myself in some of the ways I've used my words. So the question I must continually ask myself is, who will I be? I hope you will ask that same question. Shall we pray? Father, we recognize and confess there are times when our behavior and our words are not in keeping with how you would have us to relate to others, no matter the nature of our differences. We're reminded of Jesus' words that we're to be salt and light, persons who make a positive difference wherever and whomever we are, ones that set an example for others and bear witness to your presence in our lives. Through the presence of your Spirit, heighten our awareness of what that means for us day by day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
It's been my experience that God's Holy Spirit deals with each of us where we are and as we are. This time of invitation is for the purpose of allowing God's Spirit to work His way in each of our lives. If the Spirit is dealing with you in some way and you need to make some public decision for salvation, for church membership, or for whatever other reason, then I invite you to come. I'll be here to meet you, to talk with you, to pray with you, whatever your need may be. But this invitation, invitation time is for you and the Spirit. Nancy and the group will lead us now in our invitation hymn as you stand. experiences from the past that were exceedingly troubling and emotionally painful. If that was the case, then I would encourage you to find someone to help you to work through those experiences to find healing. For the women, the church is beginning a new support ministry later this month. You'll see it on the back of the bulletin. It's entitled, Healing for Hurting Hearts. So, if this potentially addresses a need you might have, then I would encourage you to attend or contact one of the facilitators if you would like more information. Nancy? Thank you, Dr. Horniker. I want to draw your attention to a number of things in the bulletin. Hopefully you have taken advantage of reading about National Back to Church Sunday, which we will be part of two weeks from today on September 18th. Then on the back of the bulletin, you will see a number of things for you to be taking advantage of in the coming days. Thank you so much, Dr. Horniker, for inspiring us, making us look at ourselves this morning. I invite you to stand as Al Jackson, who is our co-chairperson of the Deacon Council comes to lead us in our closing prayer. And as he's coming, let me remind you that the church office is closed tomorrow in observance of Labor Day. We'll be back at 8 on Tuesday. Thank you so much as we stand.
video board is there. Then we'll search upon our own steps. Search the word for ourselves. As he's been moved, we may apply these truths to our daily lives. Now, Lord, as we prepare to 